Well, I'm not Anthony, as uh, you recognize. So Anthony's on that trip in the Dominican. And just to let you know, he's on kind of an exploratory trip, um, trying to figure out how Riverview could partner with that church planner in the idea that we would take people from Riverview here in Ashland and go down to the Dominican multiple times throughout the year, build a real relationship with those people, get to know them, um, pray for them, and just be a part of what God wants to do there. So it is exciting what he's doing. And just for fun, I thought I'd think, well, how hot is it really right now in the Dominican? Because you guys want to know that, right? So it's a high of 88 degrees right today. So it's only about, like, what, 85 degrees warmer than it is right now? So anyway, Anthony, I really hope that you are enjoying it while we are here. But the truth is, God is good, Right? even in cold weather. And so I'm excited to share with you today as we jump into God's Word. Can you pull me down just, just a little bit? Thank you very much. Um, okay, so today we are continuing our series looking at the church in Corinth um, from the letter of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been here for a while, we've been in this series for quite a long time. And we're looking at this church that God completely loves. He desperately loves this church. He pours His grace upon them. But what we see pretty much every single week is that this church is also really messed up. Over and over again, we're seeing how this church is missing God's ideal for them. And so this week, we're going to look at another practice that they are doing within the church in Corinth that is so far from God's heart. What we're going to look at this morning is how the church in Corinth is actually practicing the Lord's Supper. Or some of you know it as communion or maybe the Eucharist, depending on your uh, church background. Well, for me, growing up, we called it communion. And I grew up in this little church in the suburb of Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is why I'm representing the Detroit Tigers today. Um, and in that church, we always did communion the same. <clears throat> and so in our church, we would, you know, get out of our pews, we would go to the back wall, we'd make this big line around the outside, and then you would come to person number one. And person number one had the bread, and they would say, the body of Christ shed for you. You would take a piece of bread out of that and move on to person number two, and they would have, you know, the juice in a cup, and they would extend it forward, and then you would take your bread, dip it in there, and then you would eat, and then you would go on. So this is the only way that I thought communion worked. Like, I literally didn't know people did it any other way because that's the only way that I knew until the day when my grandpa came to worship with us at church. And it was a little different. So it started out normal. We all, you know, went to the back of the church, got in a line, did the line, came around to the first person, and, you know, body of Christ shed for you. My grandpa takes out the piece of bread, moves on to person number two, and this is where everything changed. <laughs> it got a little different at this point. So they extended the cup, and they said, you know, the blood of Christ shed for you, at which point my grandpa riches and rips the cup out of the person's hand, puts it to his lips, takes a big gulp, gives it back, and walks along. Now, for me, you know, as a kid, I'm thinking, okay, so now I'm supposed to take this and dip it into what my grandpa just had his lips all over? And I mean, at least I'm family. Like, the people behind me were like, wait, what? What happened? And so, obviously, my grandpa came from a very different religious background. That was normal for him. And maybe what we do at Riverview is not so normal for you. But what I've realized is I've grown and gone to different churches, studied different traditions. People do the practice of the Lord's Supper differently. They, they do it differently. 
And what I've also realized as I've dove into Scripture is that God nowhere says explicitly how it must be done. He doesn't say that you have to get in a line and walk around the outside and come to person number one, then go to person number two. He doesn't even say there needs to be two people. He doesn't even really say who it is that can administer those elements. And he doesn't really even say how often you should do it. He says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. But does that mean every week? Does it mean once a month? Does it mean when it fits the message really well? Does it mean we do it in our homes? There's a lot of open area there. So what I'm realizing is that God is way less concerned with how we participate in the Lord's Supper. What he really cares about is where our heart is at as we participate and receive communion. And so that's really what we're going to talk about today because the church in Corinth, their heart was so far from what God actually desired for them. What they were doing in Corinth was actually causing more harm to their church body than good. And so that's really what we're going to look at this morning. But before we dive into the word, would you all just pray with me and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are here today. And God, as a body, we want to learn about you. We want to grow. We want to understand who you are. And we want to know more of what it looks like for us to live our lives completely surrendered to you. Father, I just want to state that I know without a doubt that my words will not change someone's heart or someone's life. If it's just me, that's not going to do anything. It has to be your spirit. You're the only one that transforms people's lives and hearts. And so right now in this moment, Father, in the name of Jesus, open up our mind to understand your truth. Open up our heart to receive it deep within us that we would be transformed by it and then live it out in our lives. God, we thank you for who you are, your incredible grace, your um, just awesome compassion and abounding love. And Father, we just ask that you would move in our midst today. We're surrendered to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, if you want to make your way there. Again, just as a little bit of refresher, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, he cares a lot about the church in Corinth. He actually had planted this church not too many years before this writing. And so what was happening here is he knew the people at the church. They had reached out to Paul and said, hey, Paul, this is what's going on within the church of Corinth. And then he writes this letter in response to what he knows is happening, what he knows is happening within their body. And so in chapter 11, he starts off kind of commending them. They're remembering him. They're remembering some traditions. But then when we get to verse 17, there is a huge shift in his tone, which is where we are going to start. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. <clears throat> he says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse, which is what I said. What they're doing is actually causing harm within their body. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So right from the very beginning, we see that there are problems within the church of Corinth. Because he says there are divisions there. And God 
does not desire division within his church. What he desires is oneness, harmony. Like even Jesus, before he was crucified, he prayed for believers who would come after him and says, make them one as me and his, you know, the Father are one. So his desire is that we would be one as a body of believers. But here we have division. And then Paul goes on to use the word factions. Now, really simply, a faction is a small group of people that is separating themselves based on different ideas and beliefs. Now, within the church, that would always seem to be a negative thing when you have separation based on beliefs. But here, it's almost like Paul is saying, well, at least something good about these factions is that it's actually revealing who are those that are genuine in their faith. Who of those are truly seeking the Lord? And so that's what he's saying, starting here at the beginning. So what is causing all the division within the body? Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's like, what is going on? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he is emphatic about that. So, to understand this, it's really important for us to understand the practices of the early church. So within the church in Corinth, you had wealthy individuals, you had poor individuals, and you had everything in between. And a normal practice of the church was that the wealthier believers would invite the church over to their house, it was usually a bigger house, to share the meal together and for fellowship. And so that was the practice. And this practice started really at the very beginning of the church, I mean, God's church. So if you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on, on the believers. The Holy Spirit falls on the, the people, and then at that point, it's like the church of Christ is born. If you go a little bit further in Acts chapter 2, you're going to see that now these newly formed believers are gathering together on a regular basis. They're gathering together for worship, to study, to, um, to pray, and to break bread together. So this idea of eating together was always a part of the church. And these early church meals were referred to as love feasts. And the culmination of this meal was when everyone would share the Lord's Supper together, or they would share communion together. In our context, what you can kind of envision is like a big church potluck where everybody goes to someone's house that's big enough for everyone to gather together. But the problem that was happening in Corinth is that their potluck wasn't so good. Everybody was bringing something, but they were not sharing at all. You know, it was kind of like, well, I got deviled eggs, and these are my deviled eggs, and I'm only going to eat them, and no one else gets them. You know, it's that kind of mentality that we all brought food, but we are not going to share with each other. And so look at what Paul says. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, he says, <clears throat> For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And so essentially, the poor in this church of Corinth were leaving with, you know, belly aches because they were still hungry. And on the flip side, the, the rich in this community, they were just gorging themselves on their own food and drink to the point where, you know, they're leaving and their bellies are full and they've drank so much that they can't even drive home after the gathering. So luckily there were no cars, right? <laughs> but... This is a major problem in the church. It's a major problem. And why is this such a big deal? <clears throat> Catch this. The church is supposed to be the one place 
where all the things that the world uses to divide people and to raise someone up or lower someone else. The church is supposed to be the place where all of those things are eliminated through Christ. The church is supposed to be the place where everyone can find their equal worth through their faith in Jesus. So think about it. This is like the system of the world that we live in. The world uses so many different things to divide people and to raise someone up or to put someone else down. So like in this context, it's the rich versus the poor. In some contexts, it's like a male versus female. In some, it's like college educated versus hardly any education at all. It's right family background, wrong family background. You were born on this side of the tracks. You were born on that side of the tracks. They're strong, there's weak, they're smart, there's not so smart. All these different things that the world uses to divide people. But here is the point. All these things have no place at all within the church. As you may have heard, all ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone is equal before Jesus. We are not supposed to treat someone better if they have more or treat them worse if they have less because we are all equal in Christ. But what's happening in Corinth is that the rich were separating themselves from the poor, holding onto what they viewed as their own as opposed to sharing with those in need so that everybody had enough. And this is so far from what God actually desired. And so if you want to see practically what this looks like, we've got to go back to when the church started. So I mentioned Acts chapter 2. Will you leave, you know, your finger in 1 Corinthians 11? And I actually want to go to Acts chapter 2 for just a minute. And we're going to see how this plays out in the early church. This is what it's supposed to look like. If you're new to the Bible, Acts is a couple books to the left. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that's what I mentioned earlier about how they were gathering together breaking bread, devoting to um, the apostles' teaching. But then I want you to specifically look at verse 44. So 244, it says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And then check this out. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what this is supposed to look like. That's God's heart, is that the church would lovingly provide for the needs of the people within the body, that the church would do that. And what was the result? I mean, if you look back through those scriptures, what I see is oneness, Um, I see harmony within the body. There's gladness, which means that people are experiencing full joy being together. There's generosity, which which is breeding more generosity, and everyone has what they need. And then I love that last idea, that God continued to add people to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And it's just like God was working in an awesome way. And it's like the world outside was taking notice of something that they hadn't seen And this is so attractive because outside of the church, you rarely will ever see anything like this. What we normally see in the world is an awful lot of pride and selfishness. And typically, what we see is people hanging out with people of similar backgrounds or maybe similar-sized bank accounts. But the church is called to be something so different than that, to show the world something completely different. But instead of, you know, portraying this this picture of God's self-sacrificing love, 
the Corinthian church was looking way more like the culture that surrounded them. And Paul is not happy. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 11, um, looking at verse 22. He says this, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's actually pointing out that instead of the oneness and the harmony that the body was created to experience, they're actually humiliating the people that have less than within their body. They're making people feel less than. They're making people feel unequal when they leave. And that is so wrong in the body of Christ. God's heart is that we would have harmony and desire. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. If you have faith in Jesus and you're living surrendered and want his will, we are all equal before him. No one should ever feel less than within the body of Christ. So he says to them, if you're hungry, eat at home so that you're not tempted to do this. So really this first section is all about God calling people out. He's calling out this practice. This is wrong. This does not represent Jesus. This is not what you are called to do. And then in the next section of Scripture, what he really does is he points them back to what the Lord's Supper is all about. Because it seems like they had just sort of forgotten what they were doing. And so he points them back to that. And so we're going to work through these next few verses here. But as I was studying, I came across this commentary by a man named Warren Wearsby. And I just felt like it was so helpful for understanding these passages. Because he talked about how in this next section, Paul's going to challenge the church to do four things. He's going to challenge them to look back, to look ahead, to look within, and to look around. And I'm going to keep explaining those as we go. So he first tells them to look back. Look at verse 23. Paul's writing and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul is calling the church in Corinth to go back to that night, that night when Jesus was betrayed, the night when Jesus was in the upper room, gathered with his disciples, people that he loved so dearly that he'd walked so closely with for the last few years, Jesus was there with them, knowing that his death was imminent. And he says, go back to that time. Think about that time. Think about the time where Jesus was with his disciples and he takes the bread. And he says, guys, look at this bread. This bread represents my body, right? And then he breaks it and he says, broken for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Remember me. And then he goes, you know, to the cup and uh, he lifts the cup, and then their cup would have been, you know, filled with like this dark red wine. And he says, you see this? This is a, should remind you of my blood that was poured out for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Don't miss the fact of what happened. And so he's telling the church, Paul is telling the church in Corinth, don't forget the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you. Like, don't get so comfortable with what we're doing that you forget that he died specifically for you, that his body was hung on a cross specifically for you. And then, you know, when he takes the cup and he says, don't forget the fact that Jesus' blood upon the cross forever sealed our forgiveness with God, that we would be right with him finally, and we have no fear of death because we know our eternity is sealed. 
don't forget that. Don't get so common, you know, don't, don't get so comfortable with what we're doing that you forget how this relates to you personally. And specifically in that section, he uses, uh, he talks about the new covenant, which may be a new idea for you. But basically what this means is that the new covenant was a new way that God will now relate to his people through their faith in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. See, before Jesus, how one related to God was based on how somebody did in relation to the law and keeping the commandments. And so, like, a good relationship with God was someone that kept all the commandments. But the problem is, that is literally impossible to do. Absolutely none of us can do that. Nobody can keep the commandments. And so, in the Mosaic law, we were all in deep, deep trouble. But now, through the new covenant, my relationship with God is not based on how well I do, keeping all these rules and regulations. My relationship with God is now based on how well Jesus did. And here's the awesome thing. Jesus did it absolutely perfectly. That's why it's so important that he never sinned because when we receive Christ, we get to receive his righteousness before God so that my relationship is not based on how well I do, but if I've received Christ, it's now based on how well he did, which was perfect. It's awesome. And then also in the new covenant, it's this idea that his blood paid for the sacrifice for all of my sins. So it's not just that I'm shining rightly before God. Jesus also took care of all the other sins in my life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my own sins so that I wouldn't have to pay for it. Jesus did. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, go back, don't miss this. Go back to this idea of the new covenant that now through Jesus, you are right with God for all eternity and you don't have to fear death because you know that your God has paid for your sin. You know you're righteous before him forever. Don't miss that. Don't miss the free gift that you've been given. So it's looking back. Then it's also looking ahead. So look at verse 26. Verse 26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are looking back to his death, but we're proclaiming his death till he comes. So there's this idea that we know and believe as followers of Christ that Jesus is coming back as the conquering ultimate king over all things. That this life that we are experiencing here is not all there is. That once we've received Christ, we've been transported out of the kingdom of darkness, transported in the kingdom of his son, which he loves. It talks about in Colossians. And now we are living our lives here following Jesus in hopeful expectation of the return of our king, which will happen, right? Thank you. So it's not just a look back, it's a look forward that Jesus is coming again, and that's what we are proclaiming when we take communion. Again, don't get so comfortable with this. Don't forget what he did. Don't forget that the Jesus that died on the cross is not dead anymore. He is very much alive, and he will come back as a king. Don't miss that, okay? So we're looking back, and we're also looking ahead. Then this work, it's really personal. Look within. So verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined 
so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is so much in that section. And if you're like me, maybe reading it for the first time, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what, what did he say there? Um, there is a lot there. Uh, but so let's break it down. To eat in an unworthy manner, what that means is to miss the significance of what the meal represents. That's what it means to eat in an unworthy manner. And it talks about you're sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Like, wow, what does that mean? Well, what does sin mean? The definition of sin is missing the mark. And so if you're going into this meal not thinking about what actually happened, you're missing the mark. And so then therefore sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And what was happening in the Corinthian church is that they were treating this, it's not special. There's nothing special here. It's kind of like a microwave dinner, you know. It's, it's nothing special. They were missing the fact that what had happened was a life-altering, eternity-altering event that had changed everything about them. And they were missing that. So then Paul tells them to examine themselves. Examine themselves. So the word that Paul uses there is this Greek word, dokimadzu, which means to test, examine, prove, scrutinize, or to see whether a thing is genuine or not. To see whether a thing is genuine or not. So when I read that definition, what I don't want you to do is translate in your head, examining myself means seeing if I'm good enough to take communion. That is not what God is saying there because absolutely none of us are good enough. Absolutely none of us are good enough or could ever be good enough because we all have this, this sinful flesh that always will lead us towards ourselves if we're not surrendered fully to the Lord, right? So it's not about being good enough. Don't think, okay, did I live holy enough the last seven days to take communion? That is not what he's talking about because none of us are holy. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? Which is what scripture says. But when you hear examine yourself, what I want you to think is, right now, where am I at in my relationship with the Lord? It's almost like you're laying yourself out, you know, on a table for surgery, and they're just opening you up, and they're looking inside, and you're like, God, what is going on in me? It's like what David prays um, in Psalm 139. It's like, search me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So examining yourself is coming before God and saying, right now in this moment, where am I at with you? And so what that requires of us is to maybe ask some questions of God, of where am I at? So we ask ourselves, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin in my life that I am holding on to right now? Is there any unconfessed sin that I have not dealt with? And then just listen and see what the Holy Spirit brings up. Is there anything that I am doing that is not in your will for me in my life right now. Just listen and see what God might reveal. Um, like in this situation, am I dishonoring any of my brothers or sisters in Christ? Am I putting myself above them? Listen to what he says. Or am I holding on to any like unforgiveness in my heart? You know, God has forgiven us. He desires for us to forgive. God, is there anything that I am holding on to that I am not willing to let go at all? Because when we hold on to that unforgiveness, it makes our heart even harder towards others and then towards God, and it's not good. So God, am I holding on to that in my life? Is there any bitterness that's there? And here's the thing. When we do that, we then are called to confess that before God. And so what I want to do is I want to make this little distinction right here, is that if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've trusted him, your eternity is sealed forever with God. 
But we still need to confess what's going on in our lives because it's like as you walk through life in this world, it's like you pick up junk from the world or, or sin. It's just like you're, you're picking up stuff. And so like, God, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm forever sealed with you, but I also know that it's like I just kind of need to be cleaned off a little bit. And there's where the confession thing is. And so confession is actually a really healthy practice for us to work into our lives in a normal way. It's basically saying like, God, would you just look inside me and see what's going on in there. See if there's something that I'm not recognizing. I want to open my heart to you. And then if he reveals something, then you take this time to confess it and surrender it and repent of it, meaning like I'm lining my will up with yours. But I also want to challenge you with this. Like if you're sitting here in this place and you know that there's sin that you're like holding on to in your life and your heart is hard and you're like, I'm not giving it up then I would caution you about taking communion. Like, I would caution you about that. Now, the other situation is, if you're here and you know that there's lots of sin in my life, and, but God, I don't know how to get out of it, but I'm, I'm opening my heart to you, and I want your will in my life. I just don't know how I need you to help me. That's a totally different way of looking at it. And if that's you, then I would encourage you to take communion as we're going to at the end of the service. And again, like God is so loving, so good, so compassionate. He wants us to give this stuff to him. Like, Tony, oh, I'm so glad that you finally gave that to me. I've been wanting that for a long time. And that's kind of where this whole idea of judging yourself comes in. It's like, I'm going to look what's inside my heart. I'm going to deal with it um, before anything else. Because if you look at this, like Paul is emphatic that this is not something to be taken lightly. He warns them to judge themselves. And so why does he do that? Because He's basically saying, like, you don't want to come under God's judgment for this and where you're at. And so if you look at the consequences of what he's talking about there, he's, he actually mentions sickness and death. This is, this is a weighty thing to think about as believers in Christ. It's a serious thing to think about. Now, do I believe that every single sickness and death is because of sin? I 100% do not believe that. But do I believe that it is in the realm of possibility for God to discipline us in lots of different ways, even including these here, so that our eyes would be opened, that we would realize I need to be dependent on God. I cannot walk around so prideful with sin in my heart. I cannot live that life anymore. I need you, Jesus. I think that's totally possible for God to do that. And that's exactly what Paul is saying is happening here. So before we go on, I want you to feel the weight of it but I also don't want people to be like stuck in fear, right? Because if, you're, if your heart is open and you're like, God, I do want your will, then come to him and surrender that. And he is compassionate and gracious. In 1 John, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Like that's God's heart, right? But I do want to go back to the challenge. Like if you're just, my heart is too hard and I'm not going to change, I'd really caution you about not <laughs> going into this, you know? And actually, like, feeling the weight of that. Okay. So he tells them to look back, to look forward, and to look within. And then he tells them to look around. Let's finish out the section. In verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So basically, this is Paul going back to this idea that he's had throughout this whole chapter. It's him saying, make sure that you're looking to the needs of those around you and put others before yourself. Love like Jesus did. And it's really Paul again, 
reflecting Jesus' heart. So this reminded me of that night when Jesus was with all of his disciples and they're all gathered together and he's breaking the bread and he's taking the cup. After supper, they actually spend a lot more time talking about it, specifically if you read about it in John. So he shares a lot with them. And then when he gets to John 15, he says this. So they've already had the meal. They've already done this. And he says these words to them. He says, my commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so as followers of Christ, our role is to receive the abundant, incredible love of our God so that it transforms us, so that then we go out into our community, into our lives, and we live a life of love, dying to ourselves, just like Jesus did. But it's not just like us making ourselves love people. It's depending on his spirit in us to help us love them so that they could see this incredible self-sacrificial love of our God and that they'd be drawn in to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. Okay? So just kind of um, some, some application at the end here. What we're going to do is, um, I'm going to invite the worship team. You guys can all come back up at this point. We're going to sing a song. And while we are doing that, I want you to really do that examine yourself part. Like sit where you're at. You know, don't, don't, don't stand and, and sing with us. But really use this time to say, God, where am I at with you? Is there anything in my life that you want to do? Is there anything I'm holding on to that you don't want me to hold on to? And then wrestle through that with him. And if you're able, if your heart is not completely hard, if you're able, then surrender that to him. Like repent of that. God, I'm lining up with you. And then thank him. Thank him. I mean, this is the celebration of all the Lord has done on our behalf. Then thank him for his incredible grace. And then come up and receive communion. So we will sing this, uh, we'll sing this song. The lyrics are incredible. So use this time to... Um, in your own heart, you know, meet with God. And then at the conclusion of this song, then I'll direct us in communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for this incredible grace that we could never be worthy of and could never earn. Lord, I thank you for that incredible gift. And God, as we come um, today to celebrate all that you've done, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. Lord, I just pray for our body. I pray that in these next few moments that you would speak to individuals about if there's anything in our lives that we're holding on to because we've been given this gift that costs us nothing, but yet you also want us to give everything back to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak, that we'd have open ears to hear, and that we would have a soft heart to follow you. Father, I just thank you and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.